Thank you for coming. My name is Eric Metaxas. Welcome to Socrates in the City. Uh, we are, yes, yes, feel free to applaud. Um, let me tell you a few more, a few facts, rather, uh, about Rod. Okay, he grew up, as I think you know, if you've acquainted yourself at all with this tremendous book in St. Francisville, Louisiana, um, which we'll hear about in just a moment. Um, he holds a BA in journalism from Louisiana State University. Uh, he was, among many other things, an editorial writer and a columnist for the Dallas Morning News, which is now in Dallas. Uh, he has written extremely widely. Um, he has written about religion, politics, film, and culture in so many magazines. I'll only name a few. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, the, Wall, uh, the Los Angeles Times, uh, National Review, National Review Online, National Review Online, Online. Um, yeah, it's much more digital. Um, the, weekly, the Weekly Standard, Men's Health, and of course, High Times. Uh, and, uh, and Ranger Rick. He is, um, he is an uber blogger. Now, I've been part of this, uh, I don't know, what, what do we call this, Rod? What is this group of, a, gr- a group of writers. When I met Rod, the, the first thing he did is that I've got to introduce you to Terry Mattingly and Frederica Matthews Green. Some of you know she spoke at Socrates and City a few years ago. A number of these writers that were friends of Rod, and we've been sort of emailing over the years together. And what astounds me, and again, humbles me, is that Frederica and Rod in particular seem to sneeze paragraphs and essays from their fingers, from their fingertips. Uh, just beautiful, beautifully told, long um, essays just for the six of us, you know, and as a utilitarian and somebody who's so uh, inefficient that I try to be efficient and I would never waste, a, you know, a great paragraph on just a few friends. I'd have to put it in a book or something. Rod uh, doesn't seem to have to worry about that because he just breathes this kind of verbiage. And uh, so it's extraordinary to see that. So he's been a blogger, very active blogger over the years and uh, um, very prolific blogger in a number of, uh, of places. I guess, yeah, to, to call him prolific would be like uh, calling Kim Jong-un insecure. Can I say that in a group like this? It's like, yeah, yeah, and, uh, and pudgy. So, and by the way, obviously very, very ticked that President Obama won't call him on the phone. It's, he's really upset about that. Uh, yeah, where was I? So Rod is prolific. Um, uh, in any case, uh, he, one of the blogs, he's written many blogs, was called uh, Crunchy Con, for, was written for BeliefNet. Um, that's because, well, that, out of that, or I can't remember contemporaneously, but he wrote a book about, quote-unquote, crunchy cons. Uh, maybe the subtitle will help you know what that is if you don't know already, but it's, it's, the title of the book was Crunchy Cons, How Birkenstocked Burkeans, Gun-Loving Organic Gardeners, Evangelical Free-Range Farmers, Hip Homeschooling... Now, I didn't make this up. This is actually the title of his book. Hip Homeschooling Mamas, Right-Wing Nature Lovers, and Their D- Diverse Tribe of Countercultural Conservatives Plan to Save America. Um, it's a long title. It was a, it was a great book. Um, anyway, uh, I, I think I said that he was the chief film critic for the New York Post. I did. Uh, his commentaries have been broadcast on NPR's All Things Considered. He's appeared on CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, and Court TV. Uh, he's done a lot of uh, TV. Uh, I believe he was in one of the Sid and Marty Croft TV programs in the 70s. Right, Rod? Yes. 
That's it. He said HR Puff and stuff. I thought you were one of the boogaloos, um, or, or perhaps an understudy for Charles Nelson Riley. Uh, in any case, uh, in any case, as far as I'm concerned, you'll always be a dead ringer for Quentin Crisp. Um, I think that uh, you can tell that my friendship with Rod isn't isn't really such a good thing. Obviously, we've. Uh, he shared so many things with me. I've learned so much uh, from him over the years through the emails, um, uh, including some of you may know the comedian brother Theodore. Very few of you would know that. And I didn't know it until recently, but Rod introduced me to brother Theodore, and I care about nothing else at this point. Uh, um, in any case, uh, we're going to have a conversation. Uh, I've already said too much. I plan to continue that. And uh, how about a warm Socrates in the city? Welcome from my friend Rod Dreher. I don't know what to say. Thank you. I'll never say anything like that again. Uh, wow. Now, we have these microphones. I think you want it on the other lapel because uh, you're going to be looking this way. Believe me, we've had... The last time I did this was with Dick Cavett, who really will be here, damn it. And uh, he... Um, oh, is he here? Oh, and he doesn't want to sit up front? You don't want to sit up front, Dick? No? David Frost would have sit up front. Would you, would you, would you, would you, would you, would you come on? Uh, yes, yes. Obviously, there's a seat right there, which you may prefer. We, we've saved a seat for you. Uh, the, uh, I was saying, he'd rather sit next to my current wife. Well, that's fine with me. I, uh, I was saying earlier, Dick, that um, you're, I want you here because I need training wheels. I'm not used to this interview thing. And so if I screw up, you just, you know, you have to, it's sort of like spotting me. You're a gymnast. You can, so if I screw up, and I will, it'll give you an opportunity to make me feel small in front of my friends. So thank you for being here. Gosh. I, I, was, I feel like I'm, I'm in the center square and you're Paul Lynn. That's and, right. You know, Thank you. Thank wonderful. you. Thank you. You remind me of, of uh, Waylon Flowers and Madam. Can I, can I reference that? That's fine. That's fine. Anyway, um, I was just saying the last time we had an interview format at Socrates and said he was, in fact, with Mr. Dick Cavett, who just uh, made me feel very comfortable. And I, I thought, since Rod and I know each other probably too well at this point, uh, I'll, I'll feel comfortable as well. But I do think that this will be, it'll be fun to talk to you. Rod, I, I've got so much I want to ask you. I don't know where to start. I guess um, let me say that um, just last night, uh, in case I needed tutelage in how to, to interview someone who's just written a book, I had the privilege of being uh, in the same room at Barnes & Noble with Mr. Dick Cavett, who was interviewing Richard Belzer about a book he'd written called Hit List, about um, a lot of people involved in the uh, Kennedy assassination conspiracy. Absolutely fascinating. And I thought I can learn from Dick, who's obviously the master of this, and, and see how he would uh, well, ask can a question. Can come up here instead? No, 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 no. <laughs> no. <clears throat> I think he'll kind of get on. He was going to, no, no, no. He's going to, yeah. He's going to, so he's, but the, the question, my first question to you is Dick's question to Richard Belzer last night, and it's a question you shouldn't never ask, but I figure if Dick Cavett asked the question, I can ask the question. And the question is, Rod Dreher, why did you write this book? I, I wrote this book because I witnessed something extraordinary and had to tell the world about it. It changed my heart, it changed my life, and I wanted to tell people about it. 
what happened was this. I, I was raised in a small town in South Louisiana, St. Francisville, as you said, and a uh, town of 1,700 people. My sister was the country mouse. I was the city mouse. I couldn't wait to get out of there. She loved being there. She loved the, the, the woods. She loved everything about small town life, and I hated it. And as soon as I was a teenager, I went off to boarding school and put as much space between me and my hometown as, as I could, because I'd been bullied in high school, as a lot of kids who are bookish kids and, uh, in, in high school and small towns are. And uh, I, I went, got my education. I went into journalism, moved to Washington, D.C., worked in journalism there, up and down the East Coast, Miami, New York. And uh, I would go home to visit my family in Louisiana on the holidays. Uh, my sister, by contrast, she... She chose to stay there. She married her high school sweetheart. She uh, got her degree in education and went back to teach uh, sixth grade. And she, she and her husband built a house right across the, the yard from my mom and dad out in the country and raised their three girls, and life was good for them. Um, I never thought I'd go back. And then one day in uh, 2010, my sister was diagnosed with cancer with... Uh, stage four lung cancer. By the time they discovered it, it was too late. She had never smoked a day in her life. She was healthy. Uh, otherwise, um, she had done everything right in her life, and she woke up to find out she was dying. And the way she responded to that, Eric, was just something absolutely extraordinary. She was a woman of faith, uh, very plain faith. She was small-town Methodist. And uh, the way I would have done it is, if I'd found out that I had that diagnosis, I would have read every book on my shelf. I would have agonized over it. I would have called every priest, pastor, and rabbi I knew. I would have blogged about it. And, uh, but Ruthie, she said, it's in God's hands. And the serenity she had through this entire 19 months she lived with cancer was absolutely extraordinary. And not only that, but I began to see the value of the life she had lived, a very quiet life in a small town, anonymous. But when she finally died, seeing the way the people turned out, well, not only, before, not only when she died, but before she died to help her family, I was able to, it was revealed to me the value of a, of a small life lived in place, you know, lived in the same place and the devotion she had to the people in her, the kids in her classroom and to this community. When my wife and I were down there from Philadelphia for the funeral, we were, we were overcome by what we saw and the value of this life, and we decided we wanted to be part of it. And I, through my sister's example, and by the grace of the way she lived and the way she died, I was able to find reconciliation with my father and with my hometown, and we, we moved back. Um, yeah. Um. Well, that's the summation, and there's so much there. It's funny, I, I was you know, tempted to try to sum up the book uh, in my introduction, and I thought, this is truly maybe the hardest book to sum up, because it sort of feels like three books in one. Hmm. Um, you, uh, I mean, I think you know, if somebody forced me to say one thing about it, I'd say, oh, it's a story about you know, uh, this young woman dying of cancer. But... There's so much other stuff. I mean, the story of your uh, experience and then your decision to move down there and then even things that, that, that happened. Um, let's start. I mean, part of the reason I thought this would be a great book for Socrates and City and for New York City to talk about it is because your experience is 
the experience of probably most of the people in this room who are not actually from here. Mm -hmm. um, what was life growing up in a place where you felt somewhat alien, uh, you clearly wanted to leave, you, you said you were bullied, uh, and it's not just because these glasses, right? That's right, that's Cause right. Because I, I, even I want to hit you. You, you can know imagine that. how well... I want to hit you, it's true. In I say that in love, as a Christian in love, I want to hit you. But, um, but the thing is that I'll bet you that when, you, when I read your book, I said, I'll bet a lot of people in my circles have experienced something dramatically similar to this. I know I did. Tell us what it was like to grow up in you know, rural Louisiana. Well, in my part of Louisiana, growing up in the 70s, there was exactly one way to be male, and that was to be a hunter and an athlete and a country boy. My father was and is one of the most intelligent men I've ever known. Omnicompetent at anything he touches, but he, he's a, also the quintessential country boy, and he expected his only son to be that. So they're just two of you. you just you me and, and my sister. sister. And uh, Ruthie was the son my father never had. Because sense, yeah. I, I, I joke about it, but it's really true. She loved hunting. She loved going with him to fix fence in his pasture. Me, I, I would go stay with, uh, spend the days when I was a very small boy with my, my elderly aunts, Lois and Hilda. They, had, they were from our town, and they had been Red Cross nurses in World War I. They caught a train. One. one. World they, War I. They caught a train at the bottom of the hill and didn't stop until they arrived at the front in Dijon. And they served in World War I. And those old ladies, at the end of their life, they had moved to an, uh, an antebellum cabin. It wasn't a plantation. It was a cabin, but it had been built before the Civil War. And they cultivated their garden, and I would go sit there with them. You mean that literally? Literally. They cultivated yeah. a garden. And I would go sit with them as a little boy on their red leather couch under Audubon prints that they had collected, and they would show me their photo albums of being in France and of the war and General Pershing. And, um, and they would talk, we would read the newspaper together, and there were these exotic words like Kissinger and Moscow. <laughs> to me, that, that was catnip. It was, it was like walking through the, uh, an enchanted wardrobe into Narnia for me. Ruthie didn't like that at all. She wanted to be in the woods with my dad. And um, so growing up in this family like this, I always felt a sense of rejection from my dad. My dad was very, very tender with both of us kids, but he just couldn't understand me. This is a very common experience with, with people who grow up in families. And what were you like, if I can ask, at, you know, at, at age 9 or 10? Or what, what, what would you do? What, how well, did you I, spend your time? Well, I, I read, I read, and I read, and I read. And I remember I was given a, a, a Man of the Street column for our local newspaper when I was 13. And I was so into politics, I remember it was during the Democratic Convention that year, and I would take my, my Pentax camera and my notepad and go, my mom would have to drop me off at the grocery store in town, and I would go interview people for whatever the, the question of the week was. Well, the big question one week was, uh, Edward Kennedy was challenging Jimmy Carter for delegates at the he Democratic gave that, Convention. that famous speech. Right, and so yeah. I had to, uh, I, I, I was totally into this, and I would stand there and interview farmers and say, do you think the Democratic Convention should be open or closed? They'd say, what? And I'd have to and, explain and it. And by to the them. way, you're 13. So I was a complete geek, right? Wow. And you can imagine. I mean, of course, they, everybody wanted to beat me up. I mean, who wouldn't? But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, and I eventually, in all seriousness, I eventually had the opportunity to go to a, a boarding school for gifted and talented kids. That was a, a state-supported thing in Louisiana. It was an experiment at the time, and and that's when I left. And I was happy to go away because I felt like. 
I finally found my people and a sense of community there when you didn't have to walk down the hallway of the school and be ashamed because you like books or be afraid that the football player was going to shove you. Uh, Ruthie didn't have that problem at all. I mean, she made better grades than I did, but she was loved by everybody. She was in the middle of everything. She was athletic. She was graceful. This was her place. I remember her husband, Mike, uh, gave me a, a trove of her letters that she had written to him when he was in boot camp. He was a year older than Ruthie, before her senior year of high school. And she wrote him every day and, um, while he was there. And this woman was the most well-adjusted 17-year-old. Life was good for her. She liked to fish, and she couldn't wait for him to come home, and everything was wonderful. Meanwhile, I was spending my summer holed up in my, my room listening to the Smiths and the 80s music and, you know, agonizing over the Pete, death of God. Can you be God. more specific? Uh, you, you mentioned the Smiths, Flock of Seagulls, perhaps? All of it, all of it, all of it. Pet, pet Shop Boys? Yeah, uh, you no. name it. My, I remember my dad saying to me, well, what's a talking head? And, uh, like... <laughs> Uh, if you call them Thompson twins, how come there are three of them, you know? It's a logical question. And I, was, and I would just get my, my, my asymmetrical hair and push it out of my eyes and say, you don't understand. But, <laughs> um, but um, it, you know, and I thought when I finally went away and I came to, I went to Washington and eventually in New York, that these are my people, this is my community, and that's not. I loved my community mm. back there in, a, in sort of the, an idealistic sense. I mean, they were good people, but... Those social, very tight social bonds that you have in a small southern town, I felt they held me back and they held me down. Mm. But it wasn't until years later, you know, when I saw what my sister was going through and the way the whole, after she was diagnosed, the way the whole town rushed to help her and her husband and carried that family throughout their crisis, that uh, I saw those social bonds with different eyes. I saw that those same social bonds that held me down and back were the only things holding my family together during this crisis. And the world looks a lot different when you're 45 as opposed to 15. And uh, I felt like with the, I had the grace to see, perceive everything I had been given with different eyes. When you, were, when you initially left uh, Louisiana, where, what cities did you live in? I mean, I know you during your New York phase, but uh, what, uh, who were you writing for? Because, I mean, to be fair... Uh, to give equal time, uh, so to speak, to you know those of us, yourself included, until so recently, who are away from where we grew up. I mean, in some ways, it did uh, serve you and who you were. Sure. There, there, in other words, there are many good reasons for that. It's not that that was really a wrong choice. It's just different. What What were you doing all these years? What? Let me say it this way: What were the things that attracted you? to city life, to, I know you write in the book about that incredible trip, several trips to Paris. Mm -hmm. what, what are those things that make you you? Because, uh, well, Adam Gopnik uh, wrote an essay about Paris, or the introduction to a collection of essays about Paris, and he said one reason that a certain kind of American loves Paris is because it's a city that, um, in which intellection and intellectual pursuits and pleasure are, are united in a way that they, it really is hard to find in America. Mm -hmm. But I found that to be true for me uh, to a great extent in Washington, D.C., which is the first place I went uh, after I left Louisiana, and then New York, and, and big cities, you know. I love big cities. I love the, uh, the bookstores. I love the, the movies. I love everything about city life, and I, I was fed by that. I, I became a writer, a real writer in the, in the city. And I, I did not go back home as a prodigal. I think that's very important to, to emphasize. I did... 
This is not a story of how I turned away from my wicked big city ways and went back to embrace the clear country air. It wasn't like that at all. And in fact, one, one thing I've gotten a lot from people who've read the, the early, early verses of the book, they're surprised and oddly grateful that I talk about the fact that my sister was probably a saint, but she had her own narrow bigotries against me. And one of them was she thought I had betrayed the family and been disloyal to the family by moving to the city and getting above myself, you know? And it was a hard, hard thing for me because I really respected the life that she led as a school teacher and all her achievements, but she seemed to see my achievements in the city as a rebuke, you know? I, I say that she and my father were Bayou Confucians. They believed that there was an order in the world and everyone has to find your place and stick to your place and that's how the world is supposed to work. Right. Um, and, and it was a complicated thing, you know, in family life because uh, my sister was just boundlessly generous and kind and patient with the kids in her class. We come from a fairly poor part of Louisiana. There are kids struggling with so many problems, poverty, drugs, broken families. She went out of her way to help those kids. There's this one girl I talked to in the book. Um, she came from one of the poorest, the most dysfunctional families. Actually, in the before you even yeah. say that, I forgot up front to say, to explain, because not everyone here will be on this uh, Catholic wavelength, your title, uh, The Little Way of Ruthie Lemming, I'm sure is a non sequitur for a lot of folks yeah. here. Would you, because that will help explain okay. the point you're making about her right. uh, saintly qualities. <laughs> yeah, uh, Therese of Lisieux was a, a nun, a French Catholic nun uh, who died in the late 19th century. And at the age of 24, she died young of uh, tuberculosis, I believe. And after she died, they found her writings, uh, her, her, the other nuns in the convent did, and they published them. And she became one of the great Catholic saints of the 20th century because she, she wrote in her, in her autobiographical writings about what she called her little way. She said that God didn't make everybody to live great lives. I mean, some people are made to be martyrs. Some are made to be great theologians, great preachers, great humanitarians. But some of us are meant to have small lives, but we can still be saintly, be holy, if we take the little things that are given us and do them with a heart full of love for the Lord. And my sister wasn't a Catholic, she was Methodist, but I, as I reflected on the life my sister lived as a school teacher in this small town and the things she did for people with all her heart, I began to see that a spiritual grandeur of her life revealed and it made me think of St. Therese. Now, as an example of what Ruthie did, uh, Shannon Nixon was a girl who was from a very badly broken family. Um, her mom and dad had eight kids. Uh, her dad was an alcoholic. Her mom worked three jobs to try to feed the family. Three of her brothers are in prison now. Just terrible, terribly sad case. Uh, Shannon told me that Ruthie, was, she was one of Ruthie's first students and Ruthie started teaching in the early 90s. Shannon said Ruthie was the first adult who ever smiled at her and showed her love. And Ruthie saw potential in Shannon. Shannon was African-American. And uh, in that community where we're from, in the African-American community, kids who, who study, well, they're often picked on for trying to act white. And Ruthie took Shannon under her wing and said, don't give in to the haters, Shannon. And, and Shannon's parents tried to tear her down. And Ruthie would take her lunch hour and go sit out there on the playground with Shannon and give her extra help with her lessons. And over the years, after Shannon left her sixth grade class, Shannon kept coming back to Ruthie and saw her as a mentor. 
And Shannon told me that she said to Ruthie one day, you know, I'd like to be a psychologist. Well, little poor black girls from broken families in West Feliciana Parish don't say they want to be a psychologist. But Ruthie said, Shannon, you can do that if you want to. Believe in yourself. I believe in you. Believe in yourself. Well, right now, Shannon is working at the um, Neuroscience Center at UCLA. She's got a husband and a family. And she told me, she called me after Ruthie died and said she was my angel. She made that happen. That's what a teacher can do. You know, that is the, the grace that Ruthie had. And yet, as great as Ruthie was that way, she had no patience for me. And, and I talk, I, I, don't, I don't, it sounds self-pitying, you know, but I, don't, I, I just mean that as the, the mystery of her character, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. When she was diagnosed, I flew down to, to Louisiana from Philadelphia, and I was just so overwhelmed emotionally by what, what had happened to her. And here's this woman who lived this perfect life, and here she was facing her death. And I sat with her on her front porch in the winter sunshine before going back to the airport to head back to Philly. And I said, you know, I want to clear the air here. And I apologized to her. I said, everything I've ever done to you, please forgive me. Things I should have done but didn't, please forgive me. I don't want there to be anything between us. And Ruthie was a very tender, sentimental person, but she couldn't face those difficult conversations. So she started to cry, and she did like this, like to brush it away and pulled me in, and we cried on each other's shoulder. And I thought we had cleared, we had started new. And on the way back to the airport, you know, I made a vow that Ruthie, want, Ruthie wants me to, to mend bridges with people. Because she had already said that people in town were so shocked by what had happened to her that this one man had stopped at the post office and told her husband, I've started to pray again for the first time because she needs me. You know, and I thought, this is what I can do for her. I can, I can you know, me- rebuild these broken bridges. But it turned out that Ruthie hadn't forgiven me, and but she just could not have that conversation with me. And I didn't find this out until after she died. So this is part yeah, of the that's, difficulty. Uh, don't give away too much. I won't. Because uh, we want these suckers to buy that. I mean, uh, people, patrons, <laughs> to buy the book. I have to say, you know, this is the, it really is the problem with this book. There's so much to it. Part of it, I mean, the reason I hesitate to describe it as the story of somebody dying of cancer, because that sounds like a certain kind of book, and that's a very slim piece. That's maybe a third of, of, of what it is. Um, Suzanne has read it. I read it uh, months ago, I think in October. Uh, and um, it's, in some places, hilarious. It's very, I mean, it reminds me of, you know, Flannery O'Connor or a lot of great Southern writers that it's just funny. If you know how to just tell the story, uh, which you really, really, really do. I've been telling you this for years. Uh, and stop wasting it on us, you know, in the emails. Finally, you put some of this gold uh, in between the covers of a book, and it is so, so funny. Um, but I also thought, it, toward the end of the book, that the unexpected thing, where you, where you got into this idea that this wonderful woman had, uh, you know, this imperfect side, that sure. she couldn't forgive right. you or, or whatever. And I thought... All of it was, it just rang particularly true, particularly real. It's not hagiography, uh, e- even though, um, you know, to some extent it's explicit right, hagiography, right. and yet ultimately it's not hagiography, and I you know, want to applaud you for that. I think I, I have a, um, yeah, I mean, I got the, the, the blurb I wrote, because it's always hard to write a blurb for a book, because it, there was so much there, but I said, uh, if you've ever felt like an outsider in your own family, you've got to read this book. Well, most people probably at one point or another do, but especially New Yorkers and people who've gone to the city and done things, you, 
it, that tension, when you go back and, and how do you mm -hmm. do I mean, some people never do. I gather from what you're telling me that you, you did and you had a healthy, respectful relationship with your parents. In other words, it really, you right. never did become a, uh, you weren't a prodigal because you never were estranged in that way. But it, it, No, it's but they, the wanted, they wanted me back. You know, they, they thought that I, if Perpetually. I had, in other words, they kept right. uh, wanting you to come back right, they, all they through did, these years. Because that would have been the natural order of things. I mean, one, one thing I, I talk about a lot in the book is how they had a very strong belief, especially Ruthie and my dad, about the way things are supposed to be. You know, that's when I, when I called them Bayou Confucians. That really yeah. is how, if I knew what was right and, and I was in harmony with the universe and God's will, mm -hmm. I would want to be right there in St. Francisville. And that was a source of constant conflict. But as it, as it turned out, they, they knew more about me than I knew about myself in some way, maybe for the wrong reasons. But I saw when through Ruthie's struggle with cancer and the way this community came out to help her, I mean, it... It was absolutely incredible. They did a, a fundraiser for her two months after she got sick. Ruthie was so humble. She, did, she didn't want any special attention given to her, but they, she was finally convinced by her best friend to let the town put on a fundraiser for her because her best friend said, Ruthie, let them do it. They need to do it for themselves. Well, okay, Ruthie would accept that, that this was her way to help them. And uh, this little town of 1,700 people raised $43,000 for her medical bills. And they had people coming throughout to the gate all night. They would buy, the, get their tickets, like $10 a ticket. They would pay with a $100 bill and say, keep the change. It was unbelievable. We must have had 1,500 people that night in this town for Ruthie. And I, I saw that. I thought, this is the way it's supposed to be, you know? And I was someone who had moved around all my life and so restless. I've been restless in my religious life. You know, I was raised Methodist. I've been Catholic. I'm Eastern Orthodox. And I'm so unsettled, always a seeker. And Ruthie thought that was ridiculous, too. We're Methodists. Why, why, you know, why would you need to do that? Aren't we good enough, you know? And we had real theological conflict there. Um, but... I began to see the real cost of the life. I'd, I'd gone off to try to find myself and find my own community, but there was always a, a, a St. Francisville-sized hole in my heart, if I can say that, because I... That's blasphemous, but continue. I, I, mean, I, 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 I needed a place. I, I wanted what Ruthie had. And in fact, I told her, one of her daughters this after Ruthie died. I said, don't you understand? I wanted what your mom had so bad. She felt at home in the world. Mm. And I wanted that. I craved that and never had it. And, uh, I, and I remember driving home, and this is not in the book, but I remember driving, I was back in Philly after her funeral. I was driving home from work one day to my house in Chestnut Hill, and it was raining. I was thinking about Ruthie, and I thought about home, Louisiana, St. Francisville. And usually when I would stop and think about home, my hometown, I would get a little pain in the pit of my stomach because I remembered the bullying and I remembered the, the feeling of alienation. And suddenly I noticed that feeling wasn't there anymore. And I burst into tears and said, thank you, Ruthie, thank you. Because somehow the beauty of her death and what she revealed to me about the dignity and the true worth of a life lived in community and what this community, including the, I'll tell you this, my chief bully called me right after Ruthie's diagnosis, got my number in Philly, called me and said, I'm praying for you. And we didn't talk about what had happened. We didn't have to talk about what had happened. It was all okay. And Ruthie made that happen. You know, not she always said to me, Eric, right after she got diagnosed that week in the hospital, uh, everything was falling apart. 
you know? Here's the golden girl, the homecoming queen, the, everyone's best friend. She's dying, and she has cancer on her, in her brain, lesions on her brain. They couldn't even do chemo for the lung cancer until they got the lesions under control under her brain. And she was this island of serenity. You know, there was a man in town who had a reputation for long prayers, you know, very dramatic prayers. And I was ready to throw myself in front of her hospital room so he wouldn't come in and bother her because she was exhausted. She said, no, no, Rod, let him come. I'll tell you what's happened to him. He was there when his brother drowned as a teenager. He suffered a lot. Let him come. If it makes him feel better to pray for me, I can do that for him. And that's how she was. And I... It was uncanny to see her serenity. She said, she told her girls when they, they broke the news to her three children who were um, 16, 11, and 7, when the, they have, she had cancer. She said, girls, we are not going to be angry at God. She told them, God has a plan here, and we're going to trust him. And that's how she was. She, she did, never knew whether she was going to live or die. She didn't want to know because she said it would take away from her ability to fight. But she said, Rod, we just don't know what God's going to do with this. And after she got home, uh, she had been, it had been a week since her diagnosis, one of her nurses wrote to me, because she had seen on my blog, she'd gone online trying to find a way to get in touch with Ruthie, and put this on my blog, a letter addressed to Ruthie. And she said, uh, you don't know me, but I was your nurse for a couple of nights. I've been doing this for a couple of years, and it's been hard. I had forgotten, I, I, I'd, I'd see so much suffering and wonder, God, why do you allow this? Why? I don't, it, why do the good always have to suffer? But then I saw you, Miss Ruthie, the way you reacted and how you were happy and how you were peaceful and how you brought peace to everybody around you. And I could hear God's voice again. And I saw God again. Thank you for helping me believe. And, you know, see, Ruthie said, this, this is what God is doing. And in a way, I, I, I would rather have her here and still be living far away from my family and never having had to write this book mm-hmm. But if people can read this story of my sister's life and see what it means to have courage and faith and grace, even if we're broken in particular ways as, she, as our relationship was, but to persevere in love and faith and active love, and people can go home and maybe be reconciled to their own families or their own friends. Andrew Sullivan, the blogger, he and I used to fight all the time about politics online. When I was sitting at the airport returning to Philly after Ruthie's diagnosis, I wrote to him and said, this is what's happened to my sister. And we weren't close at all. I said, I just want to ask your forgiveness for the cruel things I've said about you, and let's be friends. Life is too short to fight over politics. And he very graciously responded in kind. And we even had dinner last night. And I said, you know what? We're having dinner. We don't agree on politics, but we're having dinner because of Ruthie. So we raised our glass to her. Wow. I guess uh, I want to ask you, this is, I don't know if this kind of question even has an answer, but why do you think she was the way she was? Because you're talking about, I know a lot of people who are very religious, but who don't evince this kind of joy or faith or peace. Uh, They're unpleasant people. Uh, I, uh, you'll notice I'm not looking any of them in the eye, Um, but they know who they are. And... uh, and then there are people who seem um, to, I mean, because you're talking about courage, you know, and, and it's mm-hmm. infectious, right? And obviously you're talking about people being moved by it. But why do you think she was the way she was? Are your parents like that? Yeah. Did they teach her to be that way? What, what, what do you, how do you respond to that? 
You know, Eric, that, that's a great question because part of it is the way our parents raised us. Our par my parents both grew up very poor in West Feliciana Parish. But they grew up in a time and a place when you do for other people. My dad said we were all growing up in the Depression. We didn't know who was poor. And they believed that and my mom didn't have a coat some winters, and she remembered the people who were kind to her, the Sunday school teacher who was kind. And when she drove a school bus growing up, you know, there were a lot of poor kids on her bus, and she always made sure, even though we didn't have a lot of money growing up, to put a little candy bag together for each kid because she wanted to make sure they had something at Christmas. And that's the example our parents set for us. Mm -hmm. But there was also just something about Ruthie. You know, I, the opening anecdote of the book was, it tells us about a time, and I must have been seven, six or seven, and I was constantly picking on my sister. You know, nothing really cruel, but just, you know, in the way older brothers How much can, younger was she? She was two years younger than me. So Ruth must have been four or five when this event happened. And our dad didn't spank us much at all, but when we got a spanking, we really deserved it. And I don't know what I'd done to Ruthie, but I deserved his spanking. And he would say, go lie down on the bed. And you'd go and you'd lie down on the bed face down and just get ready to what you had coming to you. So I remember lying on my bed, waiting for the inevitable. I'm getting and, tense listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Ruthie, and, and I knew I deserved it. I always deserved it. I'd been mean to her. And um, Ruthie burst in the room. Little Ruthie, five-year-old Ruthie, threw herself across me and said, spank me, Daddy, spank me. And my dad is standing there, and he was just shocked. And, you know, he just dropped his hands and walked out. Nobody got spanked that night. And... You know, 40 years later, I still wonder what that was about. I, I told that story when I gave the eulogy at her funeral. What was it about her character, that, that self-sacrifice? That and she did the same thing for her children. You know, she wanted so badly for her children to be protected from the fear and the terror of her death that she, she felt that she had to absorb it all. She wanted to take care of everybody around her. And, and I, I'm, I'm the sort of person who will whine and complain if I have a headache. Ruthie had stage four cancer. How are you, Ruthie? And she's skin and bones. I'm great, she would say. Her oncologist told me, that she, he said, Rod, you should have seen her in the chemo, chemotherapy room toward the end. She was skin and bones, but she would walk around to the new patients coming in mm. or getting chemo, sit down and, you know, how you doing? Smile at them. And he said she was just an angel that way. It's interesting because, I mean, it's challenging for me theologically because, in a way, you, you do get this picture from people. I mean, when you talk about uh, uh, Therese of Lisieux and you talk about your sister, there are people who seem to have had this extra measure of grace. It, right. All you can see it as has to be a gift from God because you, it's not as though at that young age, when she was four or five, mm -hmm that you say, well, the right thing to do is no. to be self-sacrificial to show the agape New Testament love of Jesus and uh, to put myself in the place of my brother. And, you know, it's the sort of thing that adults might think that way. Right. Um, uh, in my book, uh, Seven Men, I write about Eric Liddell uh, from the, th from the uh, 1924 Olympics. We know the movie Chariots of Fire. It just came out a few years ago at the, the Beijing Olympics. just came out. The Chinese revealed that he was... Uh, and it, when he was in the uh, internment camp in 1944, that uh, he was given his freedom, and he said, no, uh, there's a pregnant woman, she can go free. And he ended up dying uh, of, a, of a brain tumor. Whatever. You know, it's the sort of thing that a mature adult um, does. But when you hear of a little girl doing that, right. and by the way, I can say that, you know, the book starts with that, so you start bawling. Uh, it's not like he has to work up uh, it's downhill paragraphs. From there. 
Yeah, no, but I mean, that's the thing is it's just this um, chiaroscuro. Can I use a pretentious word? Since you're wearing those glasses, I feel free to use chiaroscuro. The, um, but the idea that, you know, you start right there. And so, it, you know, you, you, you tear up like in the, right in the beginning. And then there's, there's just so much. But it does seem like there's this extra measure of grace because I think that, uh, you know, to, to, to do that at, at age four or five, it, it kind of gets you. Well, and see, you, that you raise an interesting point here because... I was the one who was, of, of the two of us, who was theologically inclined. I tell a story in the book about uh, we were in LSU at the same time, and my, my uh, best friend and I were sitting at the cafeteria table in, in college and talking about our philosophy class and Nietzsche and the death of God and, you know, stroking our beards. And, and Ruthie came and sat down with us, and, and she said, um, y'all are, why are y'all doing this? You know, just get up and go out and do something useful. You know, and she, and we just, <laughs> you know, but that's how she was. I, I, I still, to this day, I, I do not like her, uh, her anti-intellectualism, but at the same time, I learned a lot from her because mm. I'm the sort of person who, if I were given an ice cream cone, I would have to look at it from several different angles. I would taste it. I would think about it. I would over-intellectualize everything. Ruthie just got up and did it. She would eat the ice cream cone. And she believed she'd never stop to th- think about theology. God, for her, was as real as this table. I mean, it's this, this table, this chair. You know, why ever think about that? It's ridiculous to think about these things. Get out there and help people. And I, I believe, of course, that there is a, a role for intellection as a Christian. Um, but I learned a lot from her because you can be, if your faith is all in your head, as mine has been most of my life, I regret to say it's a very, it's a very weak thing. You know, uh, Thomas Merton wrote in the seven-story mountain that uh, he thought because he was ready, prepared early in his conversion to Catholicism from, he, he was uh, a pagan, uh, but early in his conversion, he was at Columbia, and he, I believe he was at Columbia, and he, he yeah. thought that he, if he could argue, you know, uh, apologetics, yeah. he, his faith was secure. But a, a priest, I believe, had told him, no, 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 if the will is unconverted, your conversion is always going to be precarious. Yeah. Ruthie's will was rock solid. You know, her will dedicated to God. And that's why she could go through, walk through the valley of the shadow of death with this stage four cancer, not knowing if she was going to live or die, but knowing that God is with her no matter what, because she had, to that point, walked with God in the mm-hmm. same way. Not in, a, in an intellectual way. And I, I think the, the thing is not to put aside intellectualism, because you can't, you can't stop thinking. You know, if you're made to think that's your nature, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with that but it needs to be put in place. The heart, the conversion of the heart is what's important. And that's what my sister's example taught me. Um, we, uh, I want to open things up in just a moment to, uh, for Q&A for the audience here. And uh, they're still here, right? Um, I, uh, I guess the, there's so much that comes out of this. The, the most obvious thing, you know, we talk about faith and prayer and... Um, what do you say to somebody who says to you, you know, all these people were praying for your sister? Because let's face it, you know, once she's dead, you can look back and say, God did these good things. But you don't want a young mother of these beautiful children to die. And I know that so many people, myself included, at times prayed for your sister's healing. She was not healed. Uh, what do you make of that? And what do you make of suffering? I mean, as a person of faith, because this was, you know, this was real suffering. Well, I think that we have an impoverished view in America today of what healing is. She wasn't healed in her body. 
she was healed in her spirit. And she died, she died suddenly at home. But she had, she was luminous. You know, there's, in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, Lent is called a time of bright sadness because things are very grim during Lent as you're preparing for Easter. But it's bright because the, the, the darkness of the penitential season, it helps remove you. The idea is it removes you from the world so you can see the things that really matter. And that's how Ruthie said to me, sitting on her front porch right after her diagnosis, she said, well, I was diagnosed on Mardi Gras. I guess this is my Lent. This is our Lent. And it really was true. You know, she, that period of 19 months that she lived, it was a time for her to be grateful for each and every day. Mm. My wife flew down from Philly to help her out. When she, when she landed, she went to Ruthie's house, and she tried to, my wife tried to wrestle down the anxiety and the sorrow by by cleaning up and let's box things, let's this. And Ruthie said, or we could sit down and eat chips and queso and just be together. That's how she was, you know, mm-hmm. that the grace of the moment, the present moment. She was happy for each and every day. And she was always like that to a certain extent, but the cancer purified her and I think healed her soul to a remarkable degree. It's also true, Eric, that she kept saying, I, I think God is going to heal my body, but if he doesn't, we know that he has a plan here. And I, I do say in the book, right after her diagnosis, I was sleeping at her house in her bed while she was in the hospital. I had to look after her children. And I was lying in her, her place in bed. I was praying. And I finally lost it. I was sobbing and raging at God. Why did you let this happen to her? So I don't believe God can will evil, but he, his permissive will, it, it happened. And he could have taken that away. And I felt this presence in the room, a real presence. I saw nothing. I was lying there looking at the ceiling. There was a presence in that room, and it was cool, and it was calming, and it spoke to me and said, she's not going to make it, but be at peace because this has to happen. And after that, I was completely calm. And I told my wife that night, I called her and said, this is what's just happened. And uh, I said, if Ruthie doesn't make it, I want you to remember I told you this. Well, it turns out, too, that not long after that, when Ruthie first started chemo and she was struggling to breathe and she would stay up these late nights in her bed, She was lying facing out the window at night, praying. Everyone else was asleep. She said, I was so scared, and I felt someone walk into my room. There was no one there, but she said someone was standing at that door, and and I couldn't bring myself to turn over and see who it was. But whoever it was took away my fear, and I knew everything was going to be okay after that night. That sort of thing happened, you know, in our family. And for Ruthie... God's presence and God's will, his sovereignty, was absolute. And she knew that even if she died, that his will would be accomplished. And and good things would come of it. It could all be redeemed if only we could unite ourselves to her suffering and to look for the good that can come out of it, look for ways to be more compassionate and merciful. And uh, it's it's an extraordinary testimony. Well, one of the good things, obviously, that's come out of it is this book, uh, again, I think, Suzanne and I are probably the only ones in the room here who've, who've read it, but it, it is a spectacular book. I, in the blurb that I wrote, I said, I, I believe this book will change lives because I don't think you can read it and uh, not be affected by it. But I, I, I'm sure that uh, 30 years from now, people will be telling their stories. I don't know who they are who's going to read this book and feel that way, but they're going to tell their stories and say, well, it was, I read that book and I ended up moving back home and it, it, there's something about it. And... Uh, I think, um, I guess I want to ask you, uh, I'll just ask this finally and then we'll open it up, but do you, 
you're not making the point in the book, uh, you don't mean to make the point that this is for everybody, this idea no. of move back to your hometown or, or something like that. Obviously not. But um, how, how would you put that? I mean, if people said, do you, do you think I should? Or what, do you, what, what is your arbiter of yeah. that? What was your final arbiter? Well, I, I think there are seasons in people's lives. There was a season in which I needed to be away. And I couldn't have gone home with love in my heart, a love for my family and this place and the treasure, the buried treasure that the people there had kept for me. Because my family had been in that town for five generations. I couldn't have gone back and embraced it if I hadn't been away. Uh, I would encourage people to be open to it, you know, to be open to return to where your family lives. But the thing is, Eric, a lot of people in America today don't have that. I remember when Julie and I went back to Philadelphia to, and we told... We had this change of heart right there at my sister's wake. We had, the day before she died, we had been up to Bucks County and looked at a, an 18th century farmhouse, a dream house. We were going to rent it. Bucks County? Bucks County, uh, about an hour north of um, Philly. We were going to rent this house, and then the next morning she died, and we had to rush down there. And at her wake, I was standing in the back of the church. I took a break. It took hours. And we got an email um, from from the, the landlord saying, sorry, you left town, you didn't resolve it, but we've rented it to someone else, good luck. And I thought, oh no, Julie's going to be heartbroken. And I ran around to the front of the church, she was outside talking to people to tell her what had happened. And she, and she said, I'm kind of relieved. And I was too, as we could tell already, our heart was changing. And that night, later that night at the wake, you know, in this town, people had not stayed overnight with the body, but her friends did not want to leave her body in the church all night. So what they did, because she was a teacher and had all these wonderful teacher friends, so what they did, they stayed there with her and they sang songs and they laughed. They painted her nails. They brought, um, they brought in sand from the creek where she would, they used to go have creek parties and with their kids, and it was joyful. I, I wanted to do the orthodox thing and read all the psalms over her body, and they said, we'll join you. Well, I, I finally went, to, went home and went to bed about one, and they were so mad at me the next day. They said, those are depressing. <laughs> and Ruthie had this one pious friend, Ashley, who said, she was reading the King James Version, and she said, I had to say the word whore. And I said, Ruthie, I'm sorry, I'm cussing in church. And but is whore in one of the psalms? It's in one of the psalms. They need but, to get rid of that. That's uh, terrible. I guess the, the, it's supposed to be a family book. No, the, How can children read that? That's the, the ridiculous. The point I wanted to make, though, is that you saw at the funeral, at her, at her, um, at her burial, you know, Ruthie loved going barefoot. She's a country girl and could not stand to wear shoes. So her pallbearers, in a final salute to her, they took their shoes off and laid them at the cemetery fence and carried her coffin to its grave, barefoot through the wet grass. And those people, we feasted. I mean, it, it was It was amazing. We, had, we ate and we drank and we laughed and we told funny stories about her life. And I thought, this is the strength of these people. And you know, Eric, I had left there as a teenager wanting to achieve, achieve, achieve. And uh, I, I remember back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I, around the time I left, Louisiana was in ter a terrible state. It always is. The politics are always bad. The economy was up and down. Um, and, and a journalist from one of the New Orleans TV stations had announced his own, he was leaving, and he gave a speech that became well-known among the journalists there, saying, I don't want to raise my kids in a city that values libraries more than parades. And I thought, absolutely, we must have good government and achievement and on and on. But what I learned through what I observed with Ruthie is the value of parades 
you know, that all this time that Ruthie and her and the community were having creek parties and Mardi Gras parades and crawfish boils and fish fries, they were building up social capital, to use a, an antiseptic term. They, they were building levees against the flood that would come. And when Ruthie got terminal cancer, that was a flood, but they held. And they held because they had been there for each other and had shared so much time together, so many good times, and they had placed the love of community and of place above personal achievement, personal happiness. And that, I think, is a lesson I hope that readers take, that wherever you are, you may be called to live in a city, but really live in your city. Learn your community. Put down roots there. Be stable. In the Benedictine sense of, like, learn to love a place and be disciplined by the limits of your place and go deep. I went very broad, but I was this shallow. Ruthie went deep. Are you, are you suggesting I need to talk to my neighbors? Because let me just say, that's a deal breaker for me. Well, a I, deal breaker. I, I, will t- I will tell you that, um, that when we went back to Philly and told people what we were doing, I thought they would make fun of us, like Green Acres, you know, oh, you're moving back to the country. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Yeah. Some people got really teary saying, I wish I could do something like that, but I can't because my mom and dad moved around so much after the job. There's no home to go to. And I realized this is a real treasure I have there. Mm-hmm. My, because people in my family over the years had not left, because they had stayed like Ruthie and tended their garden, I have a place to go back to. Right. And now that I'm back there, I want to I walk the little way of Ruthie Lemming. Mm-hmm. She's not there. I always thought that if she was there, everything was right in the world. Suddenly, Ruthie is not there anymore. So what about me? I'm the only one. Mm-hmm. My mom and dad are there hurting. I need to help. Mm-hmm. And I need to be disciplined by the limits of this place, a place I can go back to in love now, not out of guilt, but out of love. And it was an extraordinary gift my sister gave me. Well, I mean, and obviously it's a larger principle. You really can do that, I guess, anywhere, uh, you know, bloom where you're planted. Um, well, I do want to open things up uh, to this marvelously quiet group of people called the audience. Uh, thank you for not scaring Rod away. Uh, he really doesn't like you. Um, <laughs> But uh, shh, it's okay. Um, we would love to hear from you. I think you know I'm joking uh, with most of you. And uh, where are the microphones? I know there, there's a microphone there and a microphone there. If, if you've got a question, uh, we'd love to hear from you. As you know, that's kind of the point of Socrates in the City, ultimately, is to, um, to give people the freedom to ask hostile questions <clears throat> of the speaker, uh, challenge him, knock him back a little bit. Uh, tell him you think it's nonsense, everything you've just heard. Uh, or uh, not. Uh, I've got more questions. I think uh, it's funny, Rod. You know, listening to you, it's uh, not often at Stockton City that I get kind of choked up. Uh, but uh, just listening to you, this is uh, it's powerful stuff. I know you've lived it, and I've had the privilege of kind of walking alongside you and hearing um, as you've been been experiencing this. And it wasn't a surprise to any of us when you said you'd want to move down there. I mean. Well- well, a friend of mine in town here, John Podhoritz, I used to work for him at the New York Post. He said, I've known you were going to move back ever since you wrote Crunchy Cons, uh-huh. my book, my 2006 yeah. book, which is about a sense of placelessness in American yeah. life and how, you know, both the uh, liberals and conservatives, mainstream liberals and conservatives, we, we add to that. We make America a, a place where people move all the time. Yeah. You can't be satisfied because... 
you, we, we tend to have this ideology, unspoken ideology, that the point of life is to become a more satisfied shopper. I don't like it here, well, let me move. And I, I live that way, even though knowing in my mind, my, by my political convictions and moral convictions, that's not the way to live. But I never found the strength to resist it until I saw what happened to Ruthie. And you know, I, Julie and I went back to Philadelphia after Ruthie was sick, got, got sick. And I said, what would happen to us if one of us got cancer, yeah. right? Um, we had friends there in our homeschooling group, but we had only been there uh, about a couple of months by the time when she got sick. We hadn't been there long enough to develop a deep bench. You know, when, when you, something like this happens, you see the value of having lived in one place all your life. Mm-hmm. And we could have stayed in Philly, you know, and, and made, a, made a life there. We had wonderful friends. But um, you have to stay somewhere. You can't just pick up and move. Mm. Is that a, a person asking a question? Thank you. Sure. Uh, thank you very, very much, Rod. Uh, I'm curious, in this city especially, in New York, which in some ways is one of the more placeless places in America today, uh, where, as Eric noted early on, most of us probably aren't from here, and as I think a lot of us learn the hard way along the way, a lot of people don't stay here for very long. So when communities here have that tendency to be so transient, and even while they exist, people are so busy with work and great events like Socrates and just the things that this city offers, uh, what are some kind of concrete tips you can give us to putting down depth and roots and living in the limits of this place in a very concrete way? If I had it to do over again, because we were here for five years, from 98 to uh, 2003, if I had it to do over again, I would have gotten more involved in church. Um, we, we went to Mass every week, but it was... We, we didn't, we felt that we had too much else going on, you know, and I, I would immerse myself in media, and there was always something else to do, something fun to do. The, some of the best times we had was uh, at our house, in our apartment in Brooklyn. Um, our dearest friends, uh, Santo and Michelle Vicenzino, Santo's here tonight, we would cook, and we would drink wine, and we would stay up late talking about the faith and talking about politics, just everything. Those were the things that were so that, that was so important. I would have done more of that, you know. I would have and I would have spent less time online, and uh, <laughs> and it's a problem for me today too. My wife has to say she says you know, my wife is the one who finds it easy to make friends and get out involved in the community, and I'm like, but I have my online community here, and I, that's not community. It's not community. And I will As say part of that online community, I resent you for saying that. Well, <laughs> I thought we were online friends, Rod. Well. Um, I have to say, too, though, you know, back in St. Francisville, when we were growing up in the 70s, the kids were, all, we were always in the ballpark on in the week, couple of weeknights during baseball season, and somebody was always having a barbecue or a crawfish boil. The kids would play, the adults would talk. And then when the kids got a little older, I noticed our parents' generation, that's when satellite TV came in. And suddenly they weren't seeing a lot of each other anymore because they were all at home in their recliners watching TV. And it was sad to see how that, that happened because they lost it themselves, that sense of community. And I think in some ways they started to regain it, but it's not that there's, the country is virtuous or small towns are virtuous mm. in the cities or not, because the problem is, is common in American mm. life, that loss of community. You can live in a small town like I do and be just as disconnected from, from your neighbors and your community as someone living anonymously in the big city, but it's harder. The great thing about living in a small town is everybody knows your business. 
The worst thing about it is everybody knows your business. Your business yeah. but, but you don't suffer alone. You have to really work hard to suffer alone in a small town. And um, so I, 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 anyway. Oh, sorry. We've got another question. Mr. Mahalski. Um, Rod, my guess is that you add something different to this community than you would have added had you never left. If we were to interview the people in this town now, what do you think they would say that you add to that community? And the second question is, what would you have liked your epitaph to have been before this experience with Ruthie, and is it different now? I think they would have to say that I had a, a sense of uh, fashion eyewear flair. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know... I, they, don't, they don't all look like that down in St. Francis, they, they don't. You can imagine how well I roll in Star Hill, Louisiana. With these, uh, no, you know, I, Dr. Tim Lindsay, who's really one of the heroes of this book, he's a young Christian doctor, an uh, evangelical doctor in our town. I, I didn't know him growing up. He's 12 years younger than I am. And uh, he made a conscious decision to come back and serve as a doctor in this town, serve his community. And uh, he's a real hero. But he told me as we were thinking about moving back, he said... Um, you know, you have to realize this town has changed a lot in 30 years. This is not the town you left. And uh, it's a lot different. People are more open and accepting here, and there's not just one way to be. And I found that really is, mm-hmm. is true. And they seem to be more open to people like me. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I, we've, we've made so many good friends. There are people I never would have known growing up, you know, because my parents had a, a certain niche that they fit in. And we, you raised with your parents' prejudices. And uh, my parents had a particular prejudice, working-class prejudice against people with wealth. And Ruthie inherited that. And um, I realized going back as an adult that, wait a minute, these people with wealth are the reason that these, these historical society people right. are the reason all these beautiful plantation homes still exist yeah. and weren't bulldozed to make a Walmart parking lot, you know? And so people are just a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. As I say in the book, you know, you realize that life is not a problem to be solved but a mystery to be lived. And I found that true with this little town. You know, you, once you learn people's stories, it's incredible. And uh, I, I find that, um, that it's, it's a place where people, and, and as I've told this story about in the book, that we, we sold the book early in town three days ago. Um, we had a signing at the little bookstore in St. Francisville. And I'm already getting emails from local people who read it, and they say, that happened to me too. They felt so alone there too and felt pushed to the margins mm. when they were growing up and they thought nobody cared and that they thanked me for saying it, yeah. you know, because they had been invisible. Well, before. I mean, and, and this, you know, has to be said that, of course, there is that stultifying aspect to some small town life and it's wonderful to get out and, uh, mm. but it's weird, in, in a way, your book is kind of like an anti-Winesburg, Ohio about a hundred years later. I don't know if Anderson wrote that in 1918 or whenever that was uh, or 21, but I mean, it, it is interesting because it's a peon to small town life, and uh, but you know his, his book was, uh, well, I, you know, criticism. It, to to, I mean, the thing about small town life is I, I was listening to some of the stories after Ruthie died. I, everyone gathered at Mike's house to try to hold him up, and he had this great line in the book: "We're leaning, but we're leaning on each other." You know, and they were telling all these funny stories. Ruthie's friends, Ruthie and Mike's friends, to cheer him up and to cheer themselves up. And I, I walked back across the, um, the way to my parents' house thinking, these stories are golden. I'm a Southerner. This is here for me. I'm a writer. Why am I not here? 
But these are stories that nobody would tell because no. all the writers get out. Well, see, this is something you, you just you mentioned. Uh, well, when uh, Paul Mahowski asked that question, it reminded me, and I've noticed this, that part of what has happened in America, for sure, um, and this is part of the, you know, this is the downside of the free market, right? It's the downside of uh, globalism. It's the downside of choices. Um, the capital not just the capital capital, but the intellectual capital, the artistic capital, the creative capital, all kinds of capital moves. And so you look at these towns, many of the towns across America, and we've all driven through them, used to be something. And in a way, um, all that good stuff tends to migrate, let's say, to the big cities. And I, I think, uh, I can't remember who it was now, but uh, it wasn't you, but another friend who was going back and, and, and sort of investing in the place where he grew up. And I thought, wow, it's so great. What this one person brings to that society is just tremendous, uh, a desire to uh, um, really just to bless it with his gifts. I mean, this is somebody that, that uh, has the ability to do that, is very creative, extremely bright. And you think, that town really needs that. And if all those people move away... That town falls apart, and I, and I can think of so many towns across America that I've driven through, and you think, this really was once a beautiful community, but now everybody, all the good people got out. You know, well, it's a leavening, else. though, isn't it? You know, it's the, a what? It's a leavening to yeah. have this diversity of people there, you know, economic and, and, and cultural, but if all the, the people who go to college never come home, that, yeah. it, it can die. Well, but, I mean, and this I, is not a new problem. There's the right. uh, World War I song... How are you going to keep them down on the farm after they've seen Paris? You know, uh, once you've seen the big city or something, you just, um, yeah, I think there's an instinct. But again, it's part of our culture. It's part of American culture to to, to feel that mobility is a good thing, to feel that choices are a good thing. And you know. well, as Dr. Tim Lindsay says in the book, I said, "What do you think the lesson of Ruthie's life is?" He said that the American dream is a lie. I said, "What do you mean?" He that said, "The American the, dream is a lie." It's a lie. And uh, Tim is the evangelical doctor. He said the idea that you can go through life and be self-sufficient and you can make, you, you can build a fortress for yourself where you won't be touched by suffering, where you, know, you can stand on your own two feet. He said, in the end, we need God and we need community. He said, you're not leaving here with a, with a U-Haul tied to your hearse. You know, we all go out, out of this world the same way we come into it. And the, the, the value of Ruthie's life is to show what it means to love and to be loved in community. And that is something that we, we, we pay a lot of lip service to it in American life. But Ruthie really lived it. Yeah. And the people in this town really lived it. And I hope that, you know, I was able to go back there, let's be honest, because I'm a writer and I can do my work on the Internet. You yeah. know, I write for the American Conservative magazine now. I'm a, I'm a senior editor there. I do all my work on the Internet. But I'm meeting more and more people who have moved there who do the same thing. You know, and thank God for that. I mean, the Internet has been very dislocating in many ways, but it has made it possible for people like me to move to towns like mm. St. Francisville. And I hope that over the course of my life, I have the opportunity to make it a place where it's easier for my children to move back mm. to and live there, you know, where they don't feel pushed out by culture, you know, by, by an intolerant culture or by economic realities, you know. That's why I live on the uh, Upper East Side. We have, uh, we've got internet, uh, you get to the airport fairly easily, and I see no need to, to move to Midtown. So thank you for, for affirming my choice. Um, 
I, there are questions. It's hard to see because of the light. We're going to have a few, few minutes for questions, and then we'll wrap up. Obviously, this is your book, your comments, your thoughts about Ruthie. But I, I see people like that in my life sometimes who are inspirational, who lead what appear to be wonderful lives. And yet, when I talk to them, my understanding or, or my understanding what their understanding of their life is like is not what I saw. And I'm curious what your thoughts are, what you might have seen from Ruthie about her thoughts, her feelings of her own life. I, I, could, you, could you elaborate on that question a little bit? Because I... Well, I, I'm curious. Uh, this is obviously, again, your book and your, your interpretation. What is her interpretation of her life? What did she see her life as? What did my sister see her life as? Ruthie was someone who was, she was like, she was so happy with her life. She had everything she needed. She had her family. She had her true love. She married her high school sweetheart. Um, and they, theirs was a real love story. And she died in his arms. And that's all she ever wanted, her, her husband and her family around her. And, and the pond. She would fish on my dad's pond. And I think Ruthie, when she, was, she was so humble. You know, she felt like she had been given so much. And in fact, that was, that was the, the, as I've said, that was the issue between us. She thought, this, we have everything we want here, you know. We're not rich. We have everything we want. Why doesn't my brother see that? Um, one thing I will say, though, your question reminds me of, people looked at my sister as she went through cancer and thought, she is so brave. Look how brave she is, you know, just cheerful throughout all this. I came to find out as I was researching the book and talking to her friends that there was a porous line, a very blurry line between stark terror and complete courage. Ruthie never wanted to know how sick she was. I looked it up right after she was diagnosed, and people with her form of cancer, they almost always die. There's a 6% survival rate after five years. Most of them are gone within a year. Ruthie lived 19 months, so I knew that she, the odds were against her. She didn't want to know it because she thought it would keep her from fighting, given all she had. Um, and she never talked to her kids about the fact that she might die, even though she was plainly dying in front of them. So I look at her example and think, was she in denial? Clearly she was to a certain extent. But she also wasn't. She knew that she could die. But I, I, I resolved it in my mind this way. It's like if a firefighter is standing in front of a burning building and he knows he's got to go to the top and try to pull children out of that building, he's not going to sit there and start thinking about his chances of survival. He's going to say, I push it aside by an act of will and say, my duty is to get up there. And he'll, you know, he'll say a prayer and he'll go. That's how she approached her cancer. Mm. She thought she had to live for those girls. And she was not going to let anything that compromised her ability to resist get in her way. And her oncologist told me, and I subsequently found this out in talking to, um, to scientists about it, this is exactly what they want people to do when they're faced with terminal illness. Because the will to live and, and to be, try to find peace within and keep serenity within and to survive, that has an en- can have an enormous effect. I mean, you can't, you can't force your body to get well. She eventually did die, but her doctor told me that she lived so much longer than she would have otherwise mm. because she had so much hope. Mm. You know, we have uh, suddenly questions on the left side. Uh, I, appreci- yes. I appreciate very much your honesty of, you know, the sainthood of your sister, but also telling, you know, she had her own biases, et cetera. So I'm really fascinated by the thing you said about when, she, when you asked her to forgive you and, and you found out later that she didn't. 
what was the end of that story? Did did she come to ultimately forgive you, or did you come to an, uh, a reconciliation in that, or is that a haunting leftover thing? Well, you know, w- what happened was I-, I thought everything was fine between us, and she died, and five months after she died, I, I took her oldest daughter, Hannah, my niece Hannah, with whom I was pretty close, and I took her to Paris. I had always promised her one day I would take her to Paris, and she was suffering a lot. For, she had run away from her mother's pain and suffering and had not wanted to be at home for, for, Ruthie's, last, for Ruthie's cancer. And I took her to Paris to kind of give her a break. It was her spring break in college. And she told me on this trip, on our last night there, we were having dinner, and we had been arguing about happiness. And she said, Uncle Rod, I think that it's more important to be happy no matter what, and I don't want to have to face the truth if it doesn't make me happy. And I said, Han, you know, your happiness, if you, if you try to be happy without facing the truth or by denying the truth, no matter how painful, your happiness will never be secure. So she told me that I feel like I need to be honest with you, Uncle Rod. I think you and Aunt Julie, my wife, are going to have trouble getting in touch with or, or getting closer to my younger sisters because we were raised in a home in which our mom talked bad about y'all sometimes. And um, she said, I knew that mama wasn't I knew that Mama was wrong when I got older and got to know you better, but my sisters didn't have any part of that, you know, and so they really don't know who you are, and they're going to be defensive. I was so upset. I cried. I was cursing. I was just, I was so, felt like we were, we had the chance. God gave us the chance, me and Ruthie, to put it all behind us, but she couldn't bring herself to have that conversation for reasons I really don't know why, and now it was too late. She was gone. And uh, I got back to my hotel room that night, and I was, and I write about this in the book, and I was so broken, and I wrote to a friend in Washington and said, this book is over. I can't do this book now. I thought things were solved between us, but it wasn't true. And Hannah had told me that even just before she died, Ruthie still had some of that, you know, chip on her shoulder. And my friend wrote and said, no, this isn't the end of your book. If you can figure out how to forgive your sister and to embrace your family, even knowing this, then it will make your book. So I went home and did that, or tried to do that, and I'm still trying to do it, but it ended up occasioning an incredibly grace-filled conversation with my father, my old dad, on the back porch, and I'm not going to talk about what's in, what was in the conversation, but it was astonishing. And my wife told me after it was over, I mean, it was so healing. She said, you know, we couldn't have had this conversation if you hadn't moved back, you know, because we would have, it, it's a sort of thing that with my people down there, I'm a journalist. I know how to get to the point. But over there, with them, things have to come out, like work their way to the surface. And through a number of Sunday dinners and back porch conversations, my dad finally made a confession. And it, it was incredible. I'm still working through this and trying not to resent my sister um, because I know she loved, people tell me in town, she loved you so much. She was so proud of you. You would not believe how she talked about you. I say, but she never told me. And so when we, we had a, an event in town recently, a reading, and I said, people, you know, tell the people in your family you love them. Give them a chance to forgive and be forgiven. Because if you don't speak the words, they're not going to know. My sister believed, well, of course I love him. He's my brother. And she thought I should know that too. Just like, well, of course God exists. Why talk about it? But um, that was how she saw the world. Thank you for well, sharing I, that. I, I think that. that's huge. Because that's the complexity of life right there. And grace is at the end of the day. So thanks for sharing that unresolved thing that we're still all on that journey for. Thanks. Uh, And thank you for your question. I think that uh, puts a nice bow 
on the evening. I apologize to those of you who thought you were going to get asked uh, ask questions. We pride ourselves on being uber-punctlish, uh, hyper-punctual uh, at Socrates in the city because I don't ever want anybody to think, oh, I, I better get out because who knows how long this will go. You always know exactly how long it will go, and it is um, our time is up. Um, I want to say... Uh, in closing, there really is so much, but just that I, I didn't mention it in the introduction, long-winded as it was, that uh, it was uh, your friend David Brooks who wrote a column about what you were doing, um, the idea that you would be moving back, and, and it was a beautiful column, and I know that that led to some big New York publishers who were in the, uh, in the room here of realizing that this with a writer like Rod Dreher, uh, if not Rod Dreher himself, um, <laughs> this could be a big book. May I tell that story before we yes, end? Yes, sure. As David, David Brooks told it in his column. David's a friend and has been a friend for a while, and after this event that I'm about to tell you happened, David said, I've been trying to figure out a way to write about your sister in this town, and this just, I, I can't not write about it now. What happened was this. Uh, my sister Ruthie and my mom had a habit every, a custom every Christmas of going to the local cemetery, the Star Hill Cemetery, and lighting a candle on the grave of every person there. There were about 200 graves, whether they were related to us or not, just so everyone would have a candle burning on their grave at Christmas. And you're not making this up. No, it really, it happened. It's it happened. just so, it really and, is so amazing. And, There's uh, a lot of stuff like this in the book, but yeah, uh, well, it's and you And you'll see in the book, this paper shows you where the map yeah, is. yeah. And uh, you would come on, home on Christmas Eve. There, people would come home from church, and there were 200 lights twinkling in the country cemetery. And uh, they had done this for 10 years. And uh, Julie and I and our family moved back just before Christmas of uh, 2012, 2011, 2011, just after Ruthie died. And uh, my mom, I remember driving out to my parents' house on Christmas Eve. They were at church. And I, I went out to their house to get something, and I saw all the candles in the cemetery lit. And I thought, well, my mom must have rallied because she had told me, I can't do it this year. I'm just too sad. And I said, well, she must have rallied. Well, and I went to our, the family Christmas party at my cousin's house, which my mom and dad weren't going to go to because they were too depressed. Well, the phone rings. I pick it. I answer it. My cell phone. My mom is crying. She said, did you see the candles in the cemetery? I said, I did, Mom. That's great. I'm so glad you lit them. She said, I didn't do it. What happened was one of the neighbors out there in Star Hill, whose stillborn twins are buried in that cemetery and other relatives. She called my dad up and said, does Miss Dorothy need help lighting the candles this year? My dad said, she's not going to do it. It's just too much this year. Susan and her husband, her name is Susan, they went there and lit all the candles for them to carry the weight. And that's community. And that's what Ruthie made happen. And David Brooks said, this is awesome. This is a lesson for our country. Oh, I remember reading the column in the New York Times, which I, of course, read every day, and uh, I didn't think it would lead to a... They laugh. Uh, they didn't, I didn't think it would lead to a book. Um, I'm so glad that uh, your publisher, Grand Central, had the uh, cash <laughs> and acumen uh, to know that this was worth getting behind. Uh, as I say, having read it, Rod, uh, I'm extraordinarily proud of you, but I'm also thrilled to think of the, the folks who are going to read this book. This is just, it's literature, it's brilliantly written, tremendously uh, captivating read. It is as far from sappy, and it, you know, 
hard to believe because of what you're writing about, but boy, uh, it ain't. So I have to say, uh, you're going uh, to spend a lot of time talking about this stuff and signing a lot of books. Now, in a few moments, as you know, uh, we're going to have a table here. You buy your books from the bookseller, Harris, uh, in the back, and then uh, f- form some kind of a line. We're not going to tell you how, but uh, please, um, please do that. And please refrain from asking the question you were afraid to ask uh, during this time because we need to get Rod out of here up to the, the patrons dinner as soon as possible. But I'm just thrilled uh, that you were all here. I'm especially thrilled Mr. Cavett didn't uh, interrupt me for my number of gaffes or whatever it was I was doing wrong. Thank you, Dick, for being a friend and showing grace. No. And um, yes, sir. He knew I'd get on stage. Yes. This is silly, but not entirely. The great Abe Burroughs, some of us are old enough to remember, writer, director, brilliant comedian on panel shows and so on. And Eric mentioned a song earlier, and it reminded me of this, and you might see its relevance, the smarter one. He claimed to have written a song called How You Gonna Keep Them Down on the Farm After They've Seen the Farm. (laughs) Thank you very much. Wow. I, um... And, and a cherry on top. Uh, thank you, Dick, for being a friend. And um, I, um, again, I want to thank you all for coming. Uh, we're going to have books for you to sign, and then we're going to hustle Rod up to the patrons' dinner. If you're meant to go to the patrons' dinner, please don't make me tell you to get up there because it's, uh, it's going to start shortly. But I just want to thank you again, and especially thank my friend, the great writer Rod Dreher.